Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. Today, I'm very happy to have Gustav Nilsson Kotta as my guest. Hi, Gustav. Hi, Stefan. Nice to be here. Gustav is an architect at IKEA, but I guess I'll, I'll leave the introduction to himself. So, uh, Gustav, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, thanks. Uh, so, um, my name is Gustav Nilsson Kotta. I uh, live in um, southern Sweden. Uh, in Istad near Malmö. Uh, I have um, studied uh, on, uh, at Chalmers in Gothenburg, Master of Science, uh, Computer Engineering. And in uh, 2008, I started working um, uh, with uh, .NET and a lot of web. And it's essentially been my, been my whole career, uh, going back and forth between the back-end, front-end, uh, doing a lot of web-related projects. Um, I work as a consultant um, on Gateway. At Jayway, and uh, I've been working with uh, with IKEA on the M2 initiative since the beginning of 2016. Yeah. Okay. So the topic of, of today's conversation is uh, micro front ends um, or front ends for microservices. Um, so obviously, we'll have to start talking about all the bad things that we want to get away from once we do microservices. So let's let's start that and talk a little bit about monoliths and uh, the typical things that people want to address oh. yes yes um so uh i think there's a there's a common pattern uh, in especially in, uh, in in enterprise in the enterprise world where you have this awareness of that you can't have your whole enterprise in one service so of course that's that's why so existed and in even I think way before so so existed, uh, we split up uh, the enterprise architecture and different services. But the front end has always been kind of uh, not really been thought about as a service. So that has still been a monolith. And now with the microservices uh, ID, where um, which in my mind is really a retake on SOA with the with the good parts. Um, People from various places in the world have started to see that we have the same problem with a front-end monolith that we have with a back-end monolith. And so everything from uh, not, not, not being able to release autonomously, um, also a, a growing code size, um, lots of bugs happening, lots of risks. Um, you have to plan more and you get into this evil feedback cycle where things just take longer, longer time. So with this micro front-end architecture, there, we try to break that up so that teams are allowed to, to deploy un- autonomously and don't have to wait for each other, basically. So it's basically continuous delivery for, for web, uh, web, web front-ends. So take, if, I, yeah. if, if, if I understand you correctly, what you're suggesting is that... Um, each of the teams would be responsible for their own front end in this in this organizational model, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so how this how this is split is from from a from a high level or the default way of splitting is that you have these verticals, and uh, I know um, for the self contained systems idea that I've, that I know that you are quite familiar with, Stefan. Um, so, uh, but just at at a large enough uh, enterprise company, uh, you t- tend to get uh, 
also splits in in the horizontals so that there's a basically a network of services and it goes quite deep so it really depends on on the size and the context of of the of the organization but to do not have this build big um, big piece of front end in front of everything and to have some form of autonomous services or teams uh, in the front end that's that's the that's that's the goal i think um mm-hmm. then how many services do you have i mean you can ha- you can basically have uh thinking for back end for front end uh concept where you have some kind of back end service and then you have the front end that's presenting those uh, things but i mean of of course the idea will be that the back end and front end are the same team and service uh up to a certain point uh where it kind of doesn't make sense to to have that anymore so it's kind of more of an more of an, more of an art or uh it's not there's no truth or like this is the way it's going to have to be um mm-hmm. that uh, in my mind so again the key part is the autonomous things uh autonomous deployment of um of front-end services mm-hmm. yeah so, so what's uh what's the breaking point what's the threshold in your view how many people do you need to have collaborating on a system for it to make sense to split it this way well i i'm quite inspired by the amazon uh, team size of two pizza teams Uh, and that's if you're not familiar with it it's uh, two i think quite large american family style pizzas so kind of 10 12 people something like that um it's the people aspect of there's a the number of relations between people are growing with uh yeah by n n squared i think so at some point it the, the, the team gets less and less effective of uh what for the team size so i think that 10 12 mm-hmm. people is okay 15 is a bit of a long stretch and the 20 it really starts to hurt that's uh how i think of it so uh if you then think about uh, that the teams had has this constraint in size which i think is a good starting point if you take into account conway's law which basically says that teams and services are isomorphic in some way um i think that teams should be allowed to have more than one service but there but yeah there's this relationship of um, essentially one to one between teams and services and you can have maybe a, a few small services as well in the in, within the team but that kind of put, puts a pressure on the architecture that if you want to have small autonomous teams the architecture has to follow you can't have a monolith um, with these two pizza teams or well, you could have, and that would be the reverse, the inverse Conway maneuver of uh, <laughs> breaking up a monolith into smaller services. So let me let me let me try to get back to the to the different options that you have here. Yeah. One would be that um, you could, um, let's say, you have twenty four people collaborating on a on a larger system. That's not that's not a typical at all. It's a typical even somewhat small size for for a large project right it might seem huge to some of our listeners who've only worked on teams with five people and all but for many enterprise 
developers and large scale projects that is not at all this is not at all atypical so if you have 24 people you could split them into a uh, let's say a front end team with six people and then split the remaining what is it 18 to two different back end service teams then you'd end, end up with three teams and one team, the front-end team, would be responsible for maintaining a consistent, well-defined, nice front-end part, and the other two teams would be responsible for their services. Yeah. What, you're, what you seem to be suggesting is instead split them into two teams of 12 and have each of them responsible for the front-end parts as well as the back-end parts. Mm. Can you, if, if that's the case, can you elaborate a bit on why you think that's a better model? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, in my I, I tend to have this uh, three three tire architecture in my in my uh, in my mind always when I think about this problem because so if you if you have any any kind of um, but let's go back to your to your model so so the problem for um, for these for the backend teams will be that if they have a story uh, that they have that they implement and are ready to to deploy uh, the value will not be delivered for the will most likely not be delivered for the end user unless there's a change in the front end as well and since we have two service teams with one front end you will have an most likely have an increase increasing queue of front end stories to uh, to expose the thing that the back end teams are working on in order to deliver customer value in the end, uh, and this and mm-hmm. this is the, this, the same for how how many layers you have, um, and this gives a kind of bad effect that, from a high level perspective, you see that okay, so you have a capacity problem in the front end team, so you have to add more people then, and adding more people, adding more code, you're just growing the monolith. You also need, uh, and then you need more planning. You need more uh, middle managers, and need more control testing. So you had again this bad feedback feedback cycle. Um, so if this is a scenario that you see is happening, or that you can kind of simulate that, hmm, if we do like this, what will happen then? Uh, I think that would be. Um, a better way to split it would be better to split the the front end into two uh, two different services where uh, where the ser- that where the back end services are in have the competence uh, and uh, of front end and being able to deploy the front end uh, themselves mm-hmm. of course this brings a whole another set of problems of course of collaboration and reuse of components which is kind of the 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 starting point of the microservice uh, or micro frontends uh, splitting services is really not hard it's it's trying kind of recombining them uh, <laughs> that is the actual problem and where i see that there's a few options that kind of turns your frontend into something that you don't want uh, in different ki- different kinds of ways, um, yeah. So, so let me let me maybe maybe 
tie this back to Conway's law. Now, a, a really hard problem for this particular episode is that I have so many opinions on what you're saying, and mm -hmm. I mostly agree with what you're saying. So I'm trying to, you know, yeah. turn it a little down and just ask the kinds of questions that I think people will will ask. Um, so let me let me see if you if you phrase it this way, it seems to make sense. I guess. Well, it will probably make sense to most people that it is useful for a team to be able to deliver all of its story, not just parts of a story and then have to sync with another team, have a meeting and schedule something. So mm. that's, that's one part. But the second part of the, of the, uh, of the, of the uh, um, reference to Conway's law that you made was that there needs to be some architectural overlap for that to work nicely. Mm. So let me try to, to get to that point. Let's just assume I have a, what many people would call a typical modern web application, let's say a single page app built with a popular JavaScript framework of some sorts, mm -hmm. then um, the two teams could collaborate on a single application, on a single front-end monolithic application without having a separate team that's responsible for this thing, right? You could have like four front-end developers in team A and four front-end developers in team B, and they all synchronize and deliver whatever the component model or module model of your JavaScript framework of choice is, to the single application mm. is is that a good choice and if it's not a good choice what are the downsides yeah i think that will be the the typical way i think to approach this um uh and i quite kind quite active on twitter and searching on uh, yeah micro front ends and uh, different keywords and i tend to see that um uh, I think I need to back up here a bit because, so for me, microservices is a really about a, di a diverse and heterogeneous architecture that it allows to to have different different technologies um, as long as they as long as they follow the same kind of interface. The, the typical thing now seems to be that. Oh, we can solve this uh, micro frontend thing with a single library of framework, be that React or Angular, and just combine. Um, we have a frame, and then we combine the components uh, from the different teams uh, in some kind of uh, in some kind of build system. That would be what was uh, I saw uh, a couple of years ago, but now we kind of tend to be more dynamic. Uh, dynamic loading, which is uh, good because you don't get the release trains and synchronization between teams. Um, but still, there's this core problem that if you and it with more and more teams, it kind of becomes uh, obvious with a small set of teams. So I think I think this twenty-four people example is kind of. It's really, it's really a good example because it's, there's no really, is it, is it worth it to support many different frameworks and libraries, or could you just um, go with one? I tend to think that we undervalue the, uh, or, or, or what do you say? We we think it's easier uh, than it is to. Um, Replace the front-end framework. So I've seen, I've seen this a couple of times where where you have this large rewrite project of the front-end, and it's like that's 
typical uh, of course you have to rewrite uh, or, or do something with your with your enterprise software sometimes but to have it like to have like two three four years cycle of rewrites is really not good for the business and uh, it would be better than uh, to have support for for a diverse technology stack in the front end from the from the start i think one of the core problems is that the front end uh, landscape is still changing a lot we ha- we see that react is uh, react is quite stable uh, many many teams like it but vue.js is is coming um, uh, faster and faster and more and more growth and um, so I'm, i kind of it's yeah i for long term uh, use um, and this is here is where I think maybe the startup world separates from the enterprise world that maybe it's worth it for for startups for some reason to to go with a monolith or a, a single library but if you have uh, if, if you're for example a bank or or e-commerce or what have you and you you will be in business for the you hope for the next 10 years and you don't want to rewrite your homepage like two or three times during that period of time I think you you want to have support for for a diverse set of technologies, which kind of brings us back to if you can't really rely on uh, having a single framework, uh, for example, React as a component library, having the alternative to 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 write everything in vanilla JS is just writing your own framework or library, so which is a trap. So instead, I think. Um, Having some form of transclusion mechanism uh, is, as far as I know, and I haven't found anything else um, in the world that supports this, uh, uh, what we want. So, but transclusion is the only thing I have found to be this mechanism of loosely coupled uh, microfrontends. Okay, so we'll obviously get into that in in, in a lot more detail. Yeah. Um. Just to but just to make it clear, so we're not talking about um, micro frontends as components within a single application that are somehow modular. Um. We're talking about different ways. We're sort of talking about ways to achieve the kind of modularity and independence and autonomy that people expect from backend microservices, um, in mm. the front end part as well. Is that a fair way to to phrase it? Yeah, uh, definitely, um, definitely. Okay. okay, so you mentioned the term transclusion. Can you briefly explain what that is? Yeah, um, sure. Uh, it's a bit confusing term uh, because I think it's basically inclusion, but on the web. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a Wikipedia art- article for transclusion. Um, there's... The best example I know, if you haven't heard of, of transclusion any, any time before, is that you use it every time you browse the web, uh, for example, with images. So you have a reference, an image tag in an HTML document, and that uh, image tag has a source attribute which points to your URL, and the browser will uh, fetch the resource of that URL and replace replace the the image tag during rendering with the image so it 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 will transclude the html document with with the image document making the image part of the html document basically 
So this will be um, uh, client-side transclusion. I think iframes are also uh, a good example of that. What is not very well known is that you can also transclude on the server side, um, which is uh, and one of those technologies that can transclude on, transclude on the server side is edge side includes, uh, but also server side includes in the old, mm-hmm. old way of building web. Okay, so what is edge side includes? So yeah, the edge the edge part uh, in edge side includes is. Uh, for me, the the last the last layer where you have some form of control uh, in your in your application or infrastructure. Um, so typically on the internet, you have a lot of proxies and, and stuff between the, the the client and server. But if, for example, if you use a CDN, that will that could be the edge for you, uh, or you maybe have some caching layer on. Um, yeah, as the, the last layer of your of your architecture. So, 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 so what's, a, what's, a, what's a CDN? Uh, oh, content delivery network. Uh, so, for example, you have uh, Akamai, Fastly, uh, let's see, and those those actually do have ESI support. Um, there's, uh, oh, I can't really remember. There's a lot of CDNs. Yeah, I think you can, can Google it. Um, so it's typically a thing that uh, people have used to store uh, resources to to cache to cache images and uh, yeah scripts and and CSS. But you can also use it for site acceleration, so that for example, um, instead of having it's a it's a bit of a cloud cloud thing. Uh, I would say now. That mm-hmm. instead of having to go into an origin server directly, um, maybe you're you're in uh, if you're in Germany, I'm in Sweden. You can, uh, and if the content is cacheable, you can actually go to. Uh, you can have a meet, go to a, your your request and go to a server which has it has the request cached, and you can get a much faster response time um, mm-hmm. from, from the CDN. And the CDN can also do a bit of more interesting things, for example, edge side includes, um, if that's supported in CDN. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so, the, so the edge side includes uh, tag, I think it's quite old. I can't really remember, but I think it's like 15 years old or so. Uh, more than that. I think it's 1999. Okay. So, edge side includes were, was based... I think from uh, within Akamai, uh, and there's a name that constantly pops up there. That and that that's Mark Nottingham. I think he lives in Australia. Um, he was the editor for the Edge Side Includes standard proposal. Um, and there's more 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 companies. Um, I think Oracle was, was one of them. Um, trying to have a way to yeah include documents uh, in on the server side. So yeah, to 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 do to do transclusion, and ESI is basically like the image tag, but for HTML and on the server side. So you, so you have a source attribute uh, and an e, uh, and the um, the URL will indicate that someone needs to fetch that URL from from yeah from that origin. And include a result 
in the in the resulting document. It's as it's as simple as simple as that. Mm -hmm. yep. So what's a what's a good use case for that? Do you have use cases for that in your system? Yes, uh, 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 I would say that it's a fundamental technology in the um, in the IKEA front micro frontends concept. Uh, that's really core part of that. Um, so what we are uh, doing is that we have this notion of pages and fragments, and that's basically the the ESI ESI lingo, I guess. So a team could have uh, responsibility for uh, a set of pages and or fragments. And fragments is, those are HTML documents that are not complete. They don't have a, a body tag, for example. They're just basically a div or, or something that's, that's uh, yeah, not complete. And pages can then make, have ESI references to fragments. And those references can then cross the team boundaries. So you can, for example, if you have a product page, that page can refer to the header and footer fragment, which makes the, uh, the menu uh, header footer uh, reusable so that the product team doesn't, doesn't, don't, doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. And the same goes in the other direction, that maybe the product team has some fragments for uh, product thumbnails. Uh, now I, I'm I'm in the e-commerce uh, domain, basically. Um, so, which makes other teams uh, makes it possible for other teams to not uh, reinvent the wheel and um, to uh, yeah, so they can refer to uh, to product thumbnails uh, from the product team, for example. So there's a yeah reuse between team boundaries uh, over team boundaries, and that's the what I said before that it's easy to split up something but it's hard to to glue the glue the parts together again and the si is the uh, the core technology that that we have uh, mm -hmm. that we have found uh, to be really useful for our services so so one of the things that i find interesting about esi as opposed to ssi uh, server side includes which which many listeners will know i guess um, is that ESI has its origins in the caching world. Um, yeah, do yeah. you actually exploit that? Do you use the, the fact that ESI uh, supports caching? Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, I'm not 100% clear on what you mean, but we, we do cache uh, ESI, uh, the resulting ESI document, ESI process document uh, for, for 15 minutes. And we also cache the, the requests that that's maybe what you what you refer to so that we can um, uh, there's not maybe there's only a fraction of the page that has actually changed um, so we can reuse the cache in uh, in the edge uh, layer then actually i was wondering in in the way you you explained things just now uh, separating um, a page into its parts, its fragments. It seems that some parts of the page are quite uh, are, are a lot more static than other parts of the page. Yes. So, um, what's what's the relation of static versus dynamic aspects of different pages? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, that I would say that there's 
for sure uh, different caching profiles um, and in our in in our example or in our project and I get and and in in all yeah all, all web pages have this this um, um, property of some parts move less less uh, much 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 slowly than other parts for example for example the header footer is much less updated than uh, maybe price information or what have you um, so those things are typically uh, well nice to cache there's and you don't and if one thing has changed it doesn't make sense to to uh, go to the origin for the rest of the uh, rest of the of the um, components uh, in the page so that's what you so instead of having the page as one uh, one monolith that if if anything has changed on that page you have to uh, yeah invalidate the whole page and um, go to fetch everything you can just replay or, or and that's happening as automatically with the caching and their setting includes that it will just fetch the things that have actually gone gone out of cache for for, for various reasons uh, and that's a really really nice uh, property that being said uh, there's a distinction that if you cache the results of of an esi uh, processing you can't really have dynamic or personalized uh, responses because i think yeah i think of caching as a as a way of reusing uh, uh, yeah a way of reusing uh, requests between different that different people has has requested so if if you have uh, requested a page and you cache it in the and there's there's a caching mechanism in the cdn then I can also reuse it if we if we are closely located. But if that's your uh, user profile page, <laughs> you do really don't want that to be cached, right? So, and that's the uh, also a caching profile thing that some 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 things should really not be cached uh, for obvious reasons. And so there's a I think that's a that's a good um, that's a good um, variable uh to to look for for, for different uh, yeah different caching profiles so mm -hmm. and and just what what i my my conclusion for from the from the last years here is that um things that you can cache typically can be quite heavily cached if you can invalidate the cache with some, some kind of cache purge mechanism to, to to push a cache invalidation to the edge and then you have some personalized views, uh, for example, the user profile, that maybe even could work out well as a single page application because you have a lot of state and you don't want to keep that state um, on, uh, on the server side because it's kind of, kind of clunky. So I, and that, I think that's maybe a bit of a difference where between you and, you and I, Stefan, that uh, you may... Maybe I am a bit more friendly to single page applications, to be honest. Uh, as long as you have a foundation that is has kind of a server side uh, lingo or concept base. 
Okay. So, for example, your product pages, I seem to recall that products are something that you can actually uh, uh, pre-generate. Is that, do I remember that correctly? Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. So that's another nice relation with, um, with being able to cache something quite heavily. So just to be clear here, we're caching the results of an, of an, uh, of an ESI processing for 15 minutes. And there, but the underlying documents are cached for four to eight hours. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. right now, which is quite long. But that, then we have the ability to to invalidate the cache uh, when we change things. And that kind of uh, the, historically, like we start, we, we didn't start here, but we, you, you can start anywhere. We started with um, um, with generating static pages. So what we what we started to build was basically a static file generator, static site generator, uh, which is uh, nice for cache and validation because when you you know that something has happened, you upload a file and then you you push the cache. So things that doesn't change is not invalidated and they just live on and have a long cache time. And if you know that a document has changed, you upload it and you push the cache. So you have Basically, yeah, the the browser cache cache is also fifteen minutes. So, so you basically have a fifteen minute uh, time to live for for things that have changed and not been updated yet. Um, mm-hmm. So, at uh, at uh, the IKEA M two uh, project, we have uh, there's a lot of of, uh, of products, of course, at IKEA and different markets. But right now, I think we are uploading between three and four million files uh, that we have in in scope okay. uh, which is uh, a lot but we don't update update them regularly i mean yeah it depends on if they change and if we change a template or what have you um but it's um yeah it's a nice mm-hmm. uh, i really like the static site uh, generator uh, architecture for things that are that support caching and that, okay. and then I kind of really like the, the single page application architecture for things that are personalized and uh, yeah, that have more client side near state. Mm-hmm. And be able to uh, to have these two very different kinds of uh, web architectures, and also of course to be able to uh, do some rendering maybe in a legacy JavaScript server, uh, Java server pages uh, application. Uh, to have the ability to have these three and more really diverse ways of have of doing web, I think is what's um, not proves but shows that the, this micro front end thing is is really valuable because you're able to lift uh, part to lift services from from maybe a legacy legacy applications to something new. And still have the same web architecture overall, how you actually integrate between the different web architectures, you might say. Mm-hmm. So this is the look, yeah. good, good availability part of, um, of this uh, microservice web architecture, right. which wouldn't be possible if you, have, uh, if you lock into a single uh, base of uh, a single JavaScript library or what have you, or server-side uh, for, that, for that sake. Right. So, so I think I, I don't. I don't think we actually disagree, right? So, the just for the record, I okay. I 
I don't like single page applications if they're really single, right? If there's just one single application for a large system, then I typically think that's a problem. If it's multiple, mm. then it's perfectly fine. Um, I, uh, I, well, I, I, anyway, I think that not, none of these things, none of the things we're talking about, the, not microservices, not microfrontends, not ESI, not any of the other stuff we're going to talk about has, uh, uh, is the right choice in every situation. Right? It all depends. Just every, every time somebody says this is the only thing you can ever use or implies it, then this, that's the point where I get sort of nervous. Because like you, I think there's value in different in different aspects. Yeah. So uh, maybe let's, let's get back to one of the, I think, um, kind of interesting questions here. So the way you explained it, um, I understand that different teams would own uh, fragments and pages. And then uh, a page might be assembled from stuff that has been produced by different teams mm -hmm. at runtime, yep. which of course means that these things need to fit together somehow. Mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you ensure that this actually works? Because uh, knowing knowing that a, that a web page is a complicated thing, you'll have not only the HTML but also the CSS and the JavaScript and all the things a fragment or, or a page relies on. How do you make sure that all of this, all of these things fit together? Yeah, a very good question. Um, so up until now, in uh, in this uh, this discussion, we, we basically we have the, now we have the HTML in the page uh, between different teams. So what you're saying is, but there's more than HTML in a, in a page. There's CSS and JavaScript. So how do you go about that and reusing that? So well, not not only that. That's that's okay. one part of the question. I think it's it's the connection between those things. Let's say, for example, that um, I produce a piece of HTML that relies on a certain JavaScript library to be available, mm -hmm. or that relies on um, a whatever I don't know Bootstrap style CSS grid framework to to be used. Then I make assumptions. My my HTML is not does not stand on its own. It relies on, on an environment that may or may not be there. That's, that's sort of yes. strongly related to what you're referring to. I think it's the connection yeah. between those things. Yeah. Uh, so basically, as a fragment producer, what can I assume of the or the surrounding environment where I'm going to be included? Um, exactly. And that's, uh, it comes down to what will what do you th do we think should is a good common base uh, of of for for pages and fragments and uh, if we say that uh, there we, we we have to go back and say if if there's a difference between uh, between pages and teams you you can as a fragment producer you can't really use it has to be the same because you, you can't really control who's using your fragments. So if, 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 if some team ha is using uh, React, you could, of course, um, uh, cheat a little bit and uh, use React in your fragments. But then if, the, if, the, if another team uh, wants your fragments and they, and they, and they don't use React, um, maybe they don't, they don't use anything at all, or they, or they have an Angular app, um, then... It, do, would you force them to use React as well? So there's kind of becomes a, a virus that every, uh, suddenly everyone needs to have everything. This is the extreme 
an extreme argument, of course. But especially, I think on the in the on the front page, uh, the landing page of of a uh, top domain, uh, there it there it tends to be that many teams want to have an, a be on the first page, which and that page is the most sensitive part of the website for for performance and there you, you really don't want to have lots of libraries so instead we need to shift and take the opposite approach saying that uh, we can have a really really small and slim uh, base of maybe a css set and a small amount of typography basically things that never change uh, or change very very seldomly and and also are versionless uh, maybe uh, some polyfills would be nice here as well. Um, these have to be agreed upon, but it shouldn't really be hard to to do to have to to form this agreement. Um, and then, as a fragment, then this is one approach. As a fragment, then you ha you have to be self-contained, so that everything that you need has to be uh, included in some way, so that you have the things that you need. Um, CSS and JavaScript, what have you. Um, the other approach is to, um, which, which is a kind of, I don't think it's, it, it, it might scale for some scenarios and, and might not for others. And I, I, I guess this really depends. Um, but having a style guide or style library um, could be a solution for, for in some contexts. And we, but for us, right now, we don't think it's a good, good idea. Maybe in the future. Uh, so then, uh, we have this notion of self-contained fragments, where uh, if you want to use, for example, the header footer, and you need CSS for that, uh, you have to include another ESI fragment or HTML fragment with ESI that contains the the link rel tag. For that, uh, for that fragment, and we—it's kind of a. If you think in Java, if you want to use, uh, if you want to make an instance of an object, you have to do an, you have to do an import to get the type and class in order to do this to create an instance. So we, this is kind of the same thing that in order to use a fragment instance, you have to import the. The fragments for its type, um, style, and script fragments, uh, and the reason why we uh, want to do for fragments and not having a hard reference to uh, JavaScript files and or CSS files is that we use, and I think it's a good practice that to use cache busting in the file names of uh, of static resources so that you can cache them for basically a year or or longer. And then you don't want these references to leak, these names to leak into the consumers. Therefore, I think, we, you'll, I think you'll have to explain cache busting. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, so let's say that you have a, a CSS file, uh, main.css. If you, and, and also that you will like to, to, for that to be, to be cached. Um, you might uh, make a thought experiment, say, well, I, I want this to be cached for one year. 
Uh, and then after a few days, maybe after releasing this, you realize that, hmm, uh, maybe it was not a very good idea to have a one-year-long browser cache because I want to make an update now. And now I have to uh, change the name to uh, main2.css uh, and uh, that will uh, work. Uh, so browse all forms of caching has a cache key, which is often the file name or URL. And instead of having this ad hoc process of, of, of uh, adding a suffix to a version number to, uh, to, uh, to a file that you want to cache, we can add a more, you can have a, have a date time, or as in our case, we use, use a, 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 an MD, some form of hash. Uh, doesn't, really, doesn't really matter what kind of hash, but a content hash so that... Um, we have a part in the file name that reflects, reflects the content of the file. So when we change the file, we get a new file name. And then, of course, all the references to that file has to change as well, which is a good reason to have the number of references to that file very, very small. Okay. So the ESI tag would remain... Um, the ESI include that you make would be the same, but it would be replaced by the actual... <laughs> reference to the to the right file yeah the esi the esi reference is version less but mm -hmm. the fragment uh contains a version a reference to a file that is versioned which is controlled by the producing team of that fragment or css file mm -hmm. so that you so, keep you keep yeah okay so instead of updating the version in place you replace it with a link to the new so things become immutable and thus cacheable forever. Yeah. So okay. so in our in our case, it would be like emailing all the <laughs> all the teams that that has this, would have this resource, and you you wouldn't even have the email. Uh, you you, but you you can't really know who's referring to that file mm -hmm. uh, unless you do some kind of analysis on what's actually on the web. So in, instead, we yeah, it's, it's better to have a decoupled uh, decoupled strategy of using uh, fragments as the way to ex export and import uh, related resources for fragment types. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. It's a bit, co bit, bit complicated, but in the end it becomes really simple because you don't, you don't really have to think about the, the, the dependencies for a fragment. You just include one ESI in the top for styles and one ESI in the bottom for, for scripts. And then you're done. So mm -hmm. it becomes it actually becomes very simple. But underlying, of course, there's a reasoning there. What wh why this why this is needed? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. so do you have some sort of contract between the fragment and the surrounding page in terms of the markup that it's allowed to use? I mean, we, we now talked about the styles and the JavaScript it's allowed to reference. But is there are there rules for whether it can include a table or a div or whatever? Uh, we don't really have that many rules uh, for fragments uh, that I on the top of, from the top of my head um, see here. So we try to. So this is a kind of a general approach that I like as well so it's I it's it's better to not be sup, super smart and think 
very, very intense of everything that can go wrong. It's better to, to when things go wrong, when, when things go wrong, to try to, fight, to fix, the, fix the errors and try to learn from that. Mm-hmm. So basically favoring mean time to recovery between, uh, over um, uh, mean time between failures. So, and things have uh, gone very, very smoothly with these fragments. Uh, maybe we, we are just lucky, but um, we don't have that many rules for how, yeah, for what you can include. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what we do have is that you can't include, uh, so, so fragments, fragments are self-contained, but that doesn't mean that you can include a whole JavaScript library for that, for that fragment type. And that's maybe a, that's a hard, hard rule that we have because if, if you have different fragment types from different teams and all, they have different dependencies, you will end up with multiple libraries uh, for, for, for some pages, which will, which would break the performance budget for that page or really make the performance less for, for end users, which is something that we don't want. That would be a hard rule. Uh, not including that much uh, for for fragments. But now I'm curious, what's a performance budget? Uh, all right, so um, this this is uh, measuring performance in the first place is uh, is I think kind of hard. Uh, performance budget would be uh, for me the number of uh, kilobytes or megabytes that you that you should be allowed to have as a, as a web page. And that is because uh, the size, uh, it, 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 the time it takes to download these assets takes time for the end user, which is hurting performance. And also, uh, in the case of JavaScript, I think there's a, basically a, for a mid-range smartphone you get one second parsing time for one megabyte of javascript um, so this in the end what you want is of course uh, as good performance as possible for all all your end users um, but they also have different uh, different network uh, yeah different networks different cpus so it's not really it's hard to measure, and it basically becomes a long tail of performance profiles. Um, so, performance budget is a proxy measurement for having something that's easily measured, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting. It reminds me, I think, in it's in Don Reinertsen's product the mm-hmm. development book, where where he mentions that um, at an at an airplane company, um, every team had a budget in terms of weight. And they were yeah. measured by uh, whether they were able to um, to reduce the weights that they whatever they, they contributed to the overall plane um, um, was supposed to be as little as possible because that influences everything. So kind of kind of the same thing because the weight of every fragment will influence the weight of the whole page, which will influence which will influence the the happiness of the actual end user sitting in front of that thing. Interesting. Yeah. The, yeah. That book is really good, and that example is great. Um, uh, I th- I think that just from the t- from what I think right now, um, it's easy for 
for uh, developers or teams to take local decisions, which makes sense for them, but can really hurt the, the, the system as a whole or the page performance as a whole. So that's why we, yeah, there needs to be some kind of rules in place where, yeah, there, where, where there's no, we have no budget for, for, uh, for fragments, but just saying they should be fairly small. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if we, yeah, and, and then learn from that. Okay. So, so you would, would, you would advise against implementing a little shopping cart icon with Angular, something like that. Uh, Yes, because that shopping cart icon would be in the header footer, which is included by all pages and teams, which will mean that all teams would have a dependency on Angular, which would mean that no team could use anything else than Angular, uh, and mm-hmm. which would break the, the property of microservices where you have uh, support for diverse and heterogeneous architectures. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. very good. So we've talked about um, ways to do transclusion on the server side using um, ESI, and many of the same things could be said for SSI as well, or for other concepts that do maybe homegrown things that do the same thing on the server side. What about the client side? Yeah, um, that's a nice... Um, uh, for for me, I see ESI as a as a base um, uh, for doing for doing micro frontends, um, and the problem is, uh, of course, that you might not want to load uh, the full page, for example, um, when um, below the fold. And now I guess I should explain what below the fold is. Yes, so please. it's it's. Uh, so there, there's of course a lot of different screen sizes, but at some point you will say, okay, so here is the part of the page which basically no end user will see, and there you can, there you can do uh, a bit of tricks to, for example, laser load, so that you don't load the that part of the page until the user has scrolled to a, a close enough. Uh, Part of the page, and you start loading uh, the components and fragments for uh, for that that part of the page. Um, I'm not really talking about like infinite scroll solutions, but more saying that it it doesn't make sense to load something that's n- not visible by a lot of people. It would be better if uh, for for the uh, for the end user, not having bandwidth for that because they didn't use it, and it didn't, didn't bring value for for the company organization because no, no nobody really saw it. Um, and it's also, I guess, <laughs> better for the environment because you shift you you sending uh, bytes that that is not really used. Um, then of course you can you can make the argument why have it in the first place, but maybe maybe it scrolled for five or ten percent of the user so. Um, so having uh, client side includes for lace loading would be a nice uh, nice use case. There's also uh, the scenario, for example, uh, if you if you have a typical search application that could that is written in um, uh, can be written in in a, in a single page application framework. Um, so you have a search box where you type things and the 
the end users more and more uh, expects to get results directly when they type and to get yeah to get search search results at that time esi is no longer uh, an option because you are only on the client side which means that you have to load uh, fragments on the client side then instead of the server side so in our case it would mean that you will have a, an esi you have esi references to the styles and script fragments but then load the, the content fragments the instances uh, uh, using the client side then there's different uh, it and that's really 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 simple uh, if you, you because you basically have uh, for example in a search result you get a list of maybe product ids you transform them to a list of urls where where these fragments are for these products and then you make ajax or fetch requests for them and include them in some form of container um, what but there's also a bit more declarative approach to to using uh, client side includes um, which and, and there are a few libraries on the web that uh, that has a more declarative way of client side includes um, again M mark nottingham the yeah um, what one of the persons behind the edge side includes from Akamai. Uh, I found a, a small library from by him called called Edge Include, which uh, has support for uh, for doing a more declarative way of including. I that was kind of ten years old when I found it, uh, so I wanted to make a port for custom elements uh, in the web component standards uh, uh, thing. And uh, that, I think, is uh, quite an improvement to the original version because you can just add, you can just add a um, DOM element to uh, uh, with JavaScript, uh, for example, in the search uh, example, and it will make it include. So um, it's kind of kind of flexible and. Uh, uh, also for for the lazy loading example, it's easy for it's much easier for the application to stop generating ESI include tags uh, below a certain uh, point and start rendering H include tags. Uh, so, so H include H include yeah. then is a custom tag, or can you explain a little bit more how 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 would a web developer? Um, what would they what would they have to produce and who would take care of transforming that into the actual intended result uh include is a uh, is a custom element where so if you import the library it will register um, uh, the age dash include tag uh, as a, as a valid html uh, element element type so and then the browser has some hooks where you get events when um, when the tag is or tag element is created and inserted in the DOM, and uh, when attributes are updated and when it's removed from the DOM and the garbage collected, something like that. So uh, there's I really like the idea of custom elements. Um, seem like version 
Zero, that was, I think, mostly developed by Google, didn't really catch on. Uh, and version one of custom elements seems to catch on, but there seems to be some kind of weird dependency with uh, ECMAScript 2015, not really easy polyfill. So um, I think for, for the HD include example, I think that version zero is still a good, good way to uh, good way to use it. Um, there's a very very small polyfill uh, written uh, right. by uh, yeah. I think you've you've used Someone. you've used the term uh, two or three times now. Can you explain? Can you explain yeah. what a polyfill is? Yes, sure. Um, a polyfill is uh, a JavaScript library. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it, you can do that with CSS as well, but it it's taking. Uh, it's basically lifting older browsers to current standards by uh, wh when it's possible to. Um, for example, if if you have a if you don't have a map uh, function on, a, on an array in, uh, in JavaScript, you could. Uh, you could theory polyfill that to make that make those arrays have a map function, so that you, for example, in IE uh, seven that doesn't have a map function, it suddenly has that if you import the if you import import a polyfill. So there's a detection mechanism that sometimes you have to implement yourself by feature detection, uh, and then load the, the polyfill library to to lift. All the browsers. Mm -hmm. So, in your example, the H include custom element would require the browser to support custom elements, and if the browser didn't support them, then the polyfill would add that support. Yes, okay. um, and that's not included in H include, so you have to mm -hmm. do that for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, it seems very similar to the ESI thing in that it's declarative. You just render HTML that says what you want there. The only difference is that it's replaced on the client as opposed to the server side. Well, the yes, only it's, exactly. it's a very big difference, but not for not for the developer rendering that HTML. Yes, uh, okay. exactly. Um, there, there's a, there's an interesting um, difference here, though. That is also one of the reasons why we went with uh, uh, with uh, fragment imports and exports for styles and scripts, and that's it. That is, uh, if you if you import if you take a, if you include a fragment with HTML on the client side, which con which contains scripts uh, references to scripts and, and CSS, the browser will not include or load those resources uh, in the browser because yeah i guess it's a security uh, risk so you have to do something else with that um, and basically it became, becomes really really complex to to be able to handle that kind of uh, scripts in responses uh, on the client side uh, it's not impossible but it's much much simpler to do to, to have the the default standard browser behavior when loading scripts and, and, and CSS. Uh, which is, yeah, again, one of the reasons why we want to separate uh, content from, from the resources. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Also, that being said, it's, uh, uh, I know that uh, there's a um, nice 
micro front end library called Taylor by Salando that is kind of doing this. I think they're using link rels in the header in the header um, HTTP headers, uh, and they are uh, have support for loading things client side. But they they seem to be really smart people, uh, so good. Uh, there's that's another way to do micro front ends uh, using the Taylor Taylor library. Uh, mm-hmm. Haven't really looked that much into it, but it, yeah, it seems 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 to be nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for for those of our listeners who understand German, there's a there's a podcast with a colleague of mine in German on our company podcast InnoQ uh, podcast that actually talks about Taylor a bit as well, and we might link to that as well. Of course, to the to the um, Zalando site and um, the framework itself as well. I think it's quite similar in terms of the fact that it supports both server side and client side transclusion. Um, it's slightly different tags, different technologies, but the overall effect is sort of similar in that it allows for composition of front ends developed by different teams. Okay, so one yeah. of the things that uh, that comes up occasionally is that um, if you do things um, the wrong way, then you might hurt yourself in terms of search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's in general speaking for. For any site, but especially for an e-commerce site, uh, search engines are search engine traffic is really really important, and it depends on how, who you ask. But the question of can Google really index pages that are rendered with JavaScript? It it depends on who you ask, even internally on Google. But what I've seen just the latest couple of weeks is that the answer from Google is that we might do that or we might not do that, depending on if they have computing resources for for the the search bot uh, in place. So that kind of tells us that you can't really be sure Mm -hmm. if, if if it will render JavaScript or not. And since client-side includes is based on JavaScript and Ajax, uh, this leads us to think that you shouldn't really have uh, client-side includes for search engine-sensitive content. This is also re- this also relates to this large say single page application alternative architecture where you, where you will have like one one um, based on one library and render everything uh, client side and then if that if you if you find yourself that you have suddenly have a, a search engine optimization requirement on you because your e-commerce actually is re- completely rendered in javascript I think that you 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 have you are in a very very complicated state in, in uh, there uh, pre-rendering uh, also um, being able to server-side render and then doing some client-side rendering after that coming down to the isomorphic or universal web apps. Um, I think that teams that are able to pull that off uh, seem to have a lot of good uh, good engineers in that in those teams. But 
I would say that I'd rather spend those engineering cycles or effort on something that actually solved, uh, solves business problems and not accidental complexity, basically, as, as I see it. Um, so, which is another, yeah, I think reason to start uh, thinking of having server-side rendering or static site generation as a, like a kind of base architecture. And then for cases when you have a high amount of personalization or what have you, do more client-side. Because that's not sensitive for search engines anyway. Okay. So, yeah. so is that the full range of options that we now talked about where um, you consider doing things on the server side, on the client side, possibly adding a single page out where it makes sense? taking search engine optimization into account. Is that the full range of, of technologies and architectural choices that you see for, for teams to, who want to go about building micro front ends? It's, it's fine if it is. I'm, hmm. just, I'm just wondering, did we miss anything or do you, do you use anything else? Yeah. Uh, let me think a little bit about this. <laughs> I think I think one interesting um one interesting thought here uh for micro frontends is the case that some organizations uh, seem to have that they have a lot of client side interactions on 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 their pages and that you maybe have three, four, five, six teams on the same page, where you basically have a more an application. Uh, I'm, I always think like Photoshop on the web or what have you, that mm -hmm. different teams can make different panels or components, um, which is really not the thing that, that I have worked on. So I, I don't really have an experience in that kind of setting. But... I, I guess that having this ESI include as a base will still make sense because then it will decouple the, the components from their or the, or the teams from their, their respective versions. Um, but so maybe, and this is really a big maybe, maybe micro frontends makes less sense if you have a really, really complicated UI. But maybe you have a specialization there instead of the, and maybe maybe time to market is not, is not that valuable mm -hmm. for in the in that kind of setting. Um, so this can yeah brings us back to the universal answer of is this the right architecture for for everyone, and of course it's not. Um, so I think you have to go back and look at the, at the organizational level or what what are, what are the trade offs. And that's always, uh, you know that you're in a good place where you have contradiction <laughs> in your, in your uh, requirements that, well, this is the pros of, of this approach, but there's also some cons and uh, we have to, yeah, we have to think a bit of what, what really, uh, yeah, what we need and, and the value mm -hmm. and the cost. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's a great summary of the whole thing. Okay, so so mm -hmm. what's a good place for people to start learning about 
micro front ends if they want to go into more details? Um, there's, uh, I, I wrote an article uh, called the Microservice Websites where where I tried to collect my, my thoughts. Um, so I, we can link mm-hmm. to that. Um, I also um, did a little manifesto style website uh, with the basically a summary. And I tried to keep that updated uh, when I come up with new, uh, yeah, when I find new ideas or learn things. Um, I also have an uh, dev talk, uh, which uh, on YouTube, uh, order presentation, uh, which has become uh, recently quite quite popular on YouTube, actually. So that's fun. Um, so we can link to that as well. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, micro front and let's see here. Bands.org. Uh, no. There's another um, way, another initiative, I think, to collect uh, these related to microfrontends. Uh, maybe we can um, collect a few more links mm-hmm. uh, after the after discussion. We can certainly do that. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Good. So I think we're at the end of our time slot. Gustav, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for all for all the insights. Uh, thanks for yeah, taking thanks, the time. And really nice uh, to be here. <laughs> yeah, great, great to have you. Thanks to your listeners for listening. And until next time, bye. Great. Bye bye.